Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, it's funny, the older that you get, (laughs) that sentence about how marriage is a mystery and profound becomes more and more real, doesn't it? When, um, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know that we're going through the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, one of the books in the Bible written by a guy named Paul is about what the church looks like if you could just straight up tell somebody what the church looks like without needing to address a particular theological problem or social problem or issue of, of sin that requires him to write. It's a book that's just straight up. What does the church look like in the world today? And basically Paul argues that it looks like a group of people who otherwise have nothing in common who, because of the work of Jesus Christ, were able to get along. That justification that Jesus, his death for sinners like you and me, was so profound that it allows us to be less defensive. It allows us to have fewer and fewer things that we get angry by. It allows us to be unified by the beauty of the gospel. And so we saw last week that we were talking about what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Do you go to a spirit-filled church? Well, if you ask that in Tulsa, you get all sorts of answers. I I think I do. What do you mean by that? Most of the time, people mean they speak in tongues, or there's tambourines, there's dancing in the aisles. Most people, you know, um, they have a whole panoply of definitions that they think that means. What Scripture says that it means is that it's exercising the ordinary means of grace. In this chapter, the ordinary means of grace— So we said that a spirit-filled person has a new song in his heart. There's a new sense of meaning. He sings psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Secondly, that there's a new gratitude in his life. He's thankful in profound ways he wasn't previously thankful for. And lastly, that there's a new humility. There's a submission, one to another, shared amongst believers in the church that marks them out as people who are filled by the Spirit. And then Paul, to illustrate what it means to be submissive, gives three roles in society or three relationships. Husband to wife, parent to child, and then boss to employee. So marriage, parenting, and work. 
And so we're going to look at the first illustration that Paul gives us. Remember that this is the classic text of Scripture that talks about marriage. And people remember it because it talks about women submitting to men, and they get all angry and fired up about that. But listen, don't miss the point of what the passage is about. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit of God? So let's look. The glue of marriage, the goal of marriage, and the end of marriage. Those are the three points. The glue of marriage, the goal of marriage, and the end of marriage. Now before I dive into what makes marriage stick together, you need to know why is this passage so important for us to get. Number one, a lot of the things that Christina just talked about, not eating on the weekends, like that should make you angry. And do you know why a lot of those kids don't eat on the weekends? Because they don't have much of a family. You know why they don't have much of a family? Because their parents do not have a marriage. The role of marriage in civil society gets a raw shake because it's been defined outside of how Scripture defines it. But when you see what Scripture says, it actually helps prevent some of those social ills because it's for the good of all people. So you need to know that God only created three institutions in Genesis 1 to 3. They were the church, the state, and lastly, the family. And crucial to the family is the role of marriage. So that's reason number one, because we've got to understand this in a world where there are kids who are not eating on the weekends. Secondly, there are a lot of teenagers and kids here who are thinking about marriage one day, which is awesome. And some of us, as we think about marriage, You know, we have a very romantic idea of it. And sometimes that romanticization of marriage, when we meet somebody, when we ask, do I want to marry this person? Actually, because they've romanticized it so much, it clouds their judgment, and they actually don't don't look for a mate in the right way. The over-romanticization of marriage causes you to have clouded judgment. And so, because Scripture knows you better than you, you need to go to Scripture and let that shape and mold your worldview. The other reason why it's important is because a lot of people have an inordinate fear of marriage. Like you've been married, there are people here who've been married before, they're divorced, and they want nothing to do with it again. The emotional hurt, the baggage that we've pulled in here to this very room today, like that's too much to handle. And you need to let Scripture help heal you too of that, to help show you the beauty of what marriage is about. And allow the Holy Spirit to contour your hearts more and more around the beauty of the gospel of grace. And then, of course, for those of us who are married, we need to recalibrate our marriage around the gospel. Most of us, as we grow, we see as we grow in marriage that we tend, those things that attracted us to our spouse in the very beginning, actually, those really cute things, you thought, that's so adorable, they drive you crazy now. And those things that you didn't really know about them, they're beautiful. And so you need to recalibrate your marriage because, as we're going to talk about, marriage is a conflict, constant conflict to shape and mold you. And so would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you recalibrate your own marriage around the gospel? All right, so let's look. The glue of marriage. If you have your Bibles before you, look at them. Look at your phones. Look at your apps. Look at the Bible. It says... In verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And other translations say cleave to his wife. 
The word hold fast or the word cleave is covenantal language in Scripture. You know, the whole of the Bible is a story, one story of how God makes covenants with his people. And covenants, they all share certain similarities. They're addressed to two parties. And then there's a list of the stipulations and the promises of that promise. Then there's the curses if those are broken or the blessings if those are kept. And then there are vows that that are given, often through symbols. So you think in Scripture, those of you who grew up in the church will think about things like, you know, God made a covenant with Moses and he gave them what? Like tangible signs through the Ten Commandments. Or before that, he made a covenant with Abraham and he gave them the sign of circumcision, very graphic symbol. Or in marriage. And today, what's the symbol for marriage? You show that vow through the exchanging of rings. That's not because you think it's cute. It, it really, it's a biblical way to bring in the sign and symbol to make it physical, a physical reminder of the vows that you've taken. When you read in Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul here goes all the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to talk about, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. He uses this old, old Hebrew language. What he's saying is that marriage is a covenant, which means that love, the love for your spouse, the love I have for Lord and the love she has for me, the love you have for you, is not a feeling. It is first an action because it's a commitment to each other. Like, all of us know, like, we could circle around and talk. Like, a lot of us know that, like, you, you fall in love with somebody, and then you fall out of like with them. Like, you fall out of like with them. You, you all of a sudden realize, I am married to this person, but I just do not like them. It's hard. And it's interesting how the Lord, in all of his humor, when he's called you to commit to each other, sometimes... When you fall out of life, you don't really enjoy being with this person. The way to enjoy them again is to love them, even though you don't feel it. To love them, and you find that as you love them, you're beginning to fall back, and you begin to like them again in a whole new way. Sometimes the way you find your enjoyment in something is by committing and loving them and pushing through it and being faithful to them, even when your feelings speak otherwise. That's That's how marriages work. You have to love each other enough to like each other. And you have to like each other just a bit in order to love each other through those times when you don't like each other very much. Marriage is first a commitment. The word covenant is the word to glue together, to stick to something. Most modern ears hear the word love or they hear the word marriage and they think it's just like this sappy romanticization. I mean, you see it all the time, you know? I mean, Modern family, you see it on TV. All the, Listen, we've got to be a people who so esteem our marriages that we see that we, are, we have covenanted together with them. And the only way that you have any hope for your marriage, because it's going to get hard, and for some of you, I know your stories, it is hard right now, is to realize that out of every covenant that God gives with people, it arises out of a covenant that he, the Father, made with his son before the dawn of time to redeem a people for his glory's sake. And the power that you have to love your spouse when it's hard does not come from you. You will exhaust yourself 
It has to come from realizing what Jesus Christ has done for you in the covenant that he made with his father to go and purchase the church, to purchase a group of broken, banged up people who utterly rejected him, who walked away from him, who, as the prophets tell us in the Bible, hoard against him. You know the story in Hosea? The whole story is a story about a man who continues to buy back Gomer. And he buys her back where? Not at Reesers. He buys her back at the brothel. Week after week, he goes and he goes, I will put down money and I want her back. And he gives of his time. He gives of his, he gives of his money. And you know what she does? Thursday night, she goes back. And he goes back again the next week and he buys her back. It's a picture. Yes, it's a story about a real per- It's a picture of Jesus' love for his church. And you know who he's buying back? He's buying back you and me. Like, in the Bible, you're not like the good Savior who saves yourself. You are the whoring prostitute that Jesus loves you enough and he says, I want you to be mine. I want you to stop exhausting yourself with your self-saving strategies to make your wife or husband into the person you want them to become. I want you to be the person that I've created you to be. And the only way you can do that is by resting in Jesus' finished work for you. By letting this doctrine about Jesus taking our sin and giving us His righteousness, we call that the doctrine of justification. Letting that doctrine not sit in your head where it will rot, but to come alive through your hands and through your tongue in the way that you love and you nurture and you encourage your spouse. Because your security does not depend upon what she thinks of you, what he thinks of you. It first depends upon the utter, infinite, beautiful acceptance that your father has for you. And so practically, this makes you much less defensive in marriage. You do not have to win every argument. And you can admit when you're broken before your spouse. Because isn't it exhausting when you're always trying to help them love you because you're like constantly like serving them not to serve them, but in order for them to ricochet their affection back on you? It's exhausting. The first thing you have to know about marriage is that the glue of marriage is a covenant. It is a commitment. It is binding, and it is for life. Let me define it. Marriage is a public, permanent, legally binding, exclusive covenant between one man and one woman who agree to share every area of their life together. And Christ's commitment to us is the best example that we have. Indeed, Paul says, our marriages point to that covenant. Secondly, what's the goal of our marriage? Like I remember, I remember when I was uh, uh, um, in college, I remember sitting at IHOP with a friend. I will not mention his name. He could be listening. But um, he wept over his harvest grain and nut pancakes because he was about to graduate from A&M and he had not found his wife. He was weeping at IHOP because here he is, the end of his four years of college, and he hadn't found her. He's doomed. And he wanted her so badly because as many guys, he was just dying to be married because he was just burning, you know what I mean? And so he is like, I really want to find 
a wife. And I failed. He was after a wife, yes. It's a great and noble thing. But the goal of his pursuit of a wife really was so that she can come meet his needs, can fulfill him. It, it wasn't the goal biblically of what marriage is to be. What's the goal of marriage biblically? The goal of marriage is not romantic affection. That comes. The goal of marriage first in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, is first friendship. When you marry somebody, you do not marry somebody who is hot, although they may be. My wife is. But you marry somebody who, thank you very much, so you marry somebody who is your friend. I remember talking to my seminary professor and mentor, John Hanna, and he was having, you know, um, his umpteenth wedding anniversary. I can't remember what number it is. And uh, I said, John, what's the secret of marriage? And he goes, you want to marry your friend. We were watching a movie a couple of weeks ago, Lauren and I were, and after the movie, it was an old movie in the 80s, and I thought, hey, let's look up and see what that actress looks like now. And it was horrifying. (laughs) Most guys marry women wanting them to stay the exact same their entire life. And most women marry men with this long list of how they want to change them. And somewhere in the middle, a friendship, hopefully, will be born. Because if not, you're going to constantly be knocking heads. And it's it's tough. You know what it's like. And we want to be a community where it's possible. Indeed, it's actually good. Where we say, hey, you know what? Pray for my marriage. Like, we have struggles. And that doesn't mean, like, you raise the flags, sound the sirens, oh my gosh, everything's falling apart. It just means, look, like, we have conflict. Which, you know what? That's a good thing, because do you know what makes friendships? Confrontation. And you and I both know that that's what makes our marriage so beautiful and so hard. They're, the best book on marriage that I know of is a book by Mike Mason. It's called The Mystery of Marriage. And I... I, every one of you, I commend this book to you. I don't do this very often, but I will even help you buy it if you need me to. It is a fantastic book. It was written by a dude who was engaged, wasn't even married. And he wrote during his engagement what marriage is, the mystery of marriage. And it is, you would think it's idealistic, but it's, it's beautiful. There was a guy you may know, his name is J.I. Packer, a very well-known Anglican evangelical, who was having troubles in his own marriage. And a grad student by the name of Mike Mason said, hey, Professor Packer, would you read this book and would you perhaps write an introduction to it? And Packer read this book and it changed his life. It rekindled his own marriage, the affection of his own marriage. And this is a guy that is writing books that tell guys like me how to preach and how to believe. Listen, in Mike Mason's book, he writes this, the wedding is merely the beginning of a lifelong process of handing over absolutely everything that one owns, and not simply everything one owns, but everything that one is. There is no one who is not more broken, who is not broken by this process. It is excruciating. It's relentless. And no one can stand up to it. Everyone gets broken on the the wheel of love, and the breaking that takes place is like nothing else under the sun. It is not like the breaking that happens in bankruptcy or in crop failure or in the loss of a job or the collapse of a lifetime's work. It is not even like the breaking that takes place in a body racked by a painful disease. For in marriage, the breaking that is done is done by the very hard heel of love itself. It is not a physical pain or a natural disaster or the terrible evil of the world out there that is to blame, but rather it is love 
love itself that breaks us. And that is the hardest thing of all to take. Deep friendship is what makes marriage work. Um, There's an old um, Puritan, many of you know, named Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 18th century. He was married to a woman named Sarah, who he met when he was 13. He was a student at Yale. She was the preacher's daughter. They met and married. There's a book written about them called Marriage to a Difficult Man. It's like the title of every book ever written about marriage with a preacher and it says in this book it says the biographers describing their marriage and it says when one is falling in love just to glimpse the other person catches the breath it quickens the pulse the touch of the precious person brings a rush of response from the flesh and heart to have known such a period is to have lived in the most in the mood of an armistice after war, to be totally responsive with emotions close to the surface. But after marriage comes familiarity. And in the case of the Edwardses, familiarity bred respect. The real test of the feelings of one person for another is in the daily encounters when one must pay the bills, carry out the trash, or sniffle through a cold. The period of homely testing disclosed to the couple that they were permanently committed to one another. So they turn to translating their love into work, into a way of life. That love that they shared together did not remain sentimental. It became service for the other person. And when you begin to understand your, your spouse as a block of marble that's not yet formed into the statue, and you realize that God is using you in your service to them to help them become what they so desperately need to become, It gives you a new profound sense of joy and protection and ownership over their life. You understand that your spouse sees herself or himself as a caterpillar, but you're the one who sees the butterfly, and you're the one who helps them get there. That's the beauty of marriage. That's the beauty of friendship. The philosophers through the ages have always described friendship with a metaphor of two people not face-to-face. That was erotic love or eros. Philia, where they're facing the same horizon and they're walking shoulder and shoulder together toward a common goal or objective. And in marriage, what's that common goal? That common goal is helping the other person see how beautiful the glories of Jesus Christ are. And therefore, how beautiful it is when you continue to bounce back and forth off each other to conform and mold each other into the image of Christ. Wives, the person who molds you into the image of Christ is never your community group leader, is never your pastor. It is your husband. Husbands, you may not feel like you're in vocational ministry, but welcome to the guild, brother. Your call is to shepherd your wife. I'm not asking this to make you feel guilty, but it is an honest question. When's the last time that you prayed with her? Not before a meal. When's the last time you actually read scripture to her? Like, she's forming a worldview right now. And so are your kids. And it's our job as parents to help immerse them in the 
lens of the gospel so that when they are able to, when they come to choose a spouse, they don't walk into a room and go, oh, she is cute, she's in, she is not, she's out. They don't understand it like that at all. Your sons walk into a room and go, that's a friend. Oh, that would be awesome to be able to give my life to her one day, someday, maybe when they're 40, right? Or to the daughters. For the daughters to be able to walk into a room and not be like so obsessed with what she looks like but to rest in her daddy's love for her. Yes, yours, but also her heavenly daddy's. That he adores her. That he has that one picked out, perhaps just for her. And does she rest in the gospel waiting for it? Or is she constantly flipping through Cosmo, freaking out, trying to figure out what the latest techniques are? Techniques are going to exhaust you. Resting in the gospel, however unsexy or unappealing it may feel, is Ironically, it is the way you are fulfilled. It is resting in his love for you. Every other religion begs that you perform for God, but in Christianity, it's different because it's God who performs for you. He gave his son for you, and if you ever wonder, how could he be so crazy? You know what? He's crazy for you, and he loves you. The glue of marriage is a covenant. The goal of marriage is not romantic affection. That's going to ebb and flow. It is friendship. And out of that friendship, like the soil in your backyard, blossoms these mighty oaks of romance. Sarah Edwards and Jonathan Edwards had a great and very long marriage, but it wasn't long enough when um, they had... Um, they had a number of children, and one of their children's name was Esther, and she was married to Aaron Burr. We all remember Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr at one time was the president of Princeton University. He died very tragically. You may remember the story in history. And um, Jonathan Edwards replaced his son-in-law as the president of Princeton. And he moved to Princeton this great pastor, great theologian who'd become a missionary. And there was a breakout of smallpox all across the area. And they wanted to inoculate the faculty. And so Jonathan Edwards decided he would be inoculated by a smallpox vaccine to protect him from the smallpox in the area. And they over-inoculated him and he died. And Esther, their daughter, just lost her husband. And then she just lost her daddy. And then shortly thereafter, they, she lost her daughter. And her mother wrote to her, and she came to Princeton. And this is what she said. She said, my dear child, this is April 3rd, 1758. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may... Kiss the rod and lay out, lay out hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. They had their husbands. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are given to God and there I am and love to be your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Ladies, when your husband dies, 
and statistics are pretty good that you're gonna that he's gonna beat you in death? How do you respond to that? Are you able to say, there's a dark cloud that covers me, but I trust in a good God? That's why you're here, to prepare for that day. Because when that day comes, we're going to hug you and we're going to be there for you, but that's not the time to talk about this. The way Sarah, the reason she could do that was because she knew that her marriage was glued by the covenant that Christ had for his people. And that she had her identity, not chiefly in being Jonathan Edwards' wife, but in being her Savior's daughter. And being so fulfilled by that, that even in the midst of the death of her husband and her son-in-law, she was able to shepherd her daughter through it. Esther, her daughter, by the way, died not long after that letter, and you knew who else? Sarah, by the end of the year, herself died. You don't come to church because it's entertaining. You come to church to prepare for the most important questions of your life so that you can hold out hope for them because you know what your marriage points to? It does not point to romantic affection, although it is a small glimpse into the end of marriage. The glue of marriage, the goal of marriage, and the end of marriage. Your marriage, Paul says, points to something. And the reason why you are to submit wives is not because this is some you know, misogynistic culture. It's because you actually have something that the husband doesn't have. It's a, stra- it's a position of strength for you to be able to submit because you have this incredible ability to help your husband be the hands and feet of Jesus in your family. Submission is not a position of weakness. It is a position of glorious strength. People always think submission is because, oh, well, they're just being biblical and misogynistic and it's so 19, you know, 1730. Listen, women, by helping your husband be the hands and feet of Christ, by submitting to them and letting them break the tie and decisions and things like that, it is to place yourself under your husband's authority and care, just like you place yourself under Christ's authority of care. If he's a knucklehead, he'll be judged for that. Don't you worry. You don't have to take it out on him every week. Nagging is a horrible way to live. But husbands also recognize that the wife has this much of the passage. You've got this much of the passage. And your call is to love her well, to help her see the end of marriage points to not how great you are, although you're great. It points to the day when Christ comes to make all things new. It is a mystery, and the mystery of marriage, Paul says, is Christ's love for his church. All throughout Scripture, the, the church is described as the bride. In Ephesians six, uh, in Isaiah 61, it says, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of his salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. He has made me beautiful. He has given me a headdress as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Or the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the messy church. I will show you how they really did worship cool. It was awesome how they did five Bible studies a week. It was great. No, I will show you the bride of Christ who is made holy and blameless for you. One flesh, to be one flesh, to experience that physically, 
within marriage is a small glimpse into the glory that's to come. Aristophanes, old Aristophanes, the old Greek poet, said, One would think that mere sex is the reason each lover takes so great and deep a joy in being with the other. It is obvious that the soul of every lover longs for something else. His soul cannot say what it is, but it's like an oracle. It has a sense of what it wants. Like an oracle, it lies hidden behind a riddle. Sex itself is beautiful and good and to be enjoyed often. But it is a small little keyhole into glory. It's a picture of what it's going to be like when you are together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in joyful, one flesh union with Jesus Christ, who has given you everything he is, so that you might, as our Westminster Confession says, enjoy him forever. It's hard to describe what it, let me use the words of Jonathan Edwards to describe what it looks like in the end. Edwards says, there will be no marriages in heaven. You know that from Mark 12, 25. Marriages will cease to be. So that shouldn't make you sad because of what you get. Edwards says it the best that I know. Then the church shall be brought to the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no more distance or absence. Then she shall be brought to the entertainment of an eternal wedding feast and to dwell forever with her bridegroom, yea, to dwell eternally in his embraces. Then Christ will give her his loves, and she shall drink her fill. Yea, she shall swim in the oceans of his love. You are a living billboard pointing to the day when those who are in Christ will swim in the oceans of a loving heavenly father, a loving son who loved you enough to die for you in the loving presence of the Holy Spirit forever. There will be an end of marriage, but it will be the beginning of the great wedding feast. And some of you, some of you have for years tried to win over your spouse by your works of righteousness. Let me... Can I just tell you, please stop. Please recognize that your righteousness cannot save you. Even your perfect marriage cannot save you. It comes only from resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you. Again, it makes no sense to the outside world, but the church is not about making your teenagers like get through high school without having sex. It is not about trying to create morally clean people. That is an effect of living out the greatest story in the world, that the infinitely holy God came to dwell on earth to win scumbags like me, sinners who hoard after other idols. He wooed me to himself. And this morning, friends, he woos you too. Is there a burning in your heart that just says, yes, Jesus? I want you to fill me with your embraces. He wants to do that. Would you let them? In just a moment, as you come to the table, prepare your hearts for that. We cannot swim in the oceans of his love, but he gives us in the Lord's Supper just a taste of it. Hmm? Let's pray together. The glue of marriage, the goal of marriage, and the end of marriage.
rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ's love for us, his church. Father, we thank you. That Yes, you call us individually to salvation. And you help us to realize that all of our self-saving strategies in life ultimately will not bring us the satisfaction we need. Lord, we thank you for that. We also thank you that you've called us together as your church to be a picture of the bride of Christ, to be the very bride of Christ, for indeed we are. But I pray that you'll help us to show one another what that looks like in the way that we love our spouse. Husbands, oh Lord, help us as husbands to love our wives. And Father, would you help the wives to respect their husbands. And where there needs to be repentance shared, I pray that this very afternoon, that you might lead us into conversations together where tears are shed, perhaps, if they need to be, and the healing begins to take place where we can begin to live for the other person just as you, Lord Christ, came live for us. Oh, Father, help us to be spirit-filled people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.